Is this a podcast? Is this just fantasy? Yes, it's a podcast. It's Escape from Reality. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Escape from Reality. Podcast all about this strange hobby we love about being locked in a room with puzzles. Tonight I'm joined by Ken. Hello, Ken. Hi, Mark. It's been quite a while. What have you been up to? Uh, a bit of this, a bit of that. A few escape rooms. Not as many as I'd like. Uh, what about you, Mark? What have you been up to? Well, yeah, it's been over a month since the last episode. And a month? A month. And that's largely to do with me having a ridiculously busy June. So the start of the month, I was at the UK Games Expo. The week after that, I was preparing and creating an escape room for my friend's 30th birthday. The weekend after that, I was away on tour with my rugby team. And just this last weekend, I was playing a mega game. So somehow in between all that, I've managed to fit in a few escapes as well and a few articles on the blog. But uh, I'm way behind where I would like to be, and consequently haven't had a chance to record another episode. But we're putting that right today. Yeah, definitely are. And for those of you listening, Mark um, is far too modest to say this, but if you've ever played Pre-HQ, then you should absolutely go and read his blog about the uh, the game that he ran, because it is quite impressive. It was a really fun project, uh, well, I, I, as I say in the write-up, and put ideas in my head about possibly something I would like to do again in the future. So whilst at the moment I'm still very much an enthusiast, there's a small inkling of a chance I could be drifting more into the owner space at some point, but um, who knows. Are you tempted by designing a room, sort of halfway house between owning and uh, just being an enthusiast? Ah, well, yes, that would be the avenue I would go down. I'm not convinced on owning a, a whole room yet, but either designing a room for someone else or coming up with a pop-up type room that I can go and run for a day or so is... Is, is where I'm thinking. But anyway, people didn't come to hear my sales pitches. Any escapes you want to mention? The one that I think is worth mentioning is probably uh, Clockwork Dogs, um, which is a pop-up escape room in London, which was um, it blew me away because I was expecting something really quite basic. They, they'd only set up a place for three weeks. So if you've only got three weeks to make your money back, you wouldn't expect them to have gone to a lot of trouble. But wow, it was really impressive for a first outing and for a pop-up it was just amazing and if you um, look at the reviews from experienced escapers like um, dean love from escape review you know that that wasn't just me that was a lot of people were saying really good first effort and i'm excited to hear what their next escape room will be did you get a chance to speak to the guys behind it at all and find out why it was just such a short run yeah i did um so uh, basically they look they're looking around for properties that they think have a nice feel to them which they can jump into and take advantage of to, to, to make a great story and this one was really only available for that time the owner was i think away on holiday maybe um, but had a very specific time they were coming back and they managed to extend it very but not by much but they're absolutely looking for new places to, to do pop-ups and i suspect i don't know and they haven't said anything but given the success they had from the first one i think they'll be looking for a slightly longer run the next time well cool that sounds exciting the escape I've got in mind is one that I want to rant about and get off my chest. I know that's not, not <laughs> something we normally do on this podcast, but it's uh, relevant to what we were discussing last month. So it was a game with a non-binary win condition. Which, oh, that sounds good. Which you know we're, we're well in favour of. 
and this one was about getting as much money as you can and for the most part it did that very very well i was having a great old time some of the money was tied up in the story of the puzzles as you went through them and part of it was also hidden in various places around the room so you was encouraged to scavenge while you're also doing the other puzzles uh, so far so good then oh, that's good. we got to the end and we were miles away from what the potential take in the room was and unlike say the vault in Warrington which is a closely guarded secret that I believe three people know now as someone else has won it but they'll tell you where all the money was that you missed and in a couple of cases there were some very sneaky hiding places and I doffed my cap and said that's fair enough and then there was two um, locked away which was equivalent of the jackpots that they have in the vault and the solutions to those puzzles were number one to select the one individual number from many numbers that were on one of the walls and input that into the lock. <laughs> and number two was arbitrarily add up some numbers that you had no reason to add and enter the total into the lock. That's, uh, that's, that's a jackpot, isn't it? Well, quite. So their idea of making this hard and a challenge to get into those last few coins was just to make illogical, random puzzles that I don't see how anyone would solve. Did you suggest to them that's the case? No. Uh, <laughs> we we only found out this uh, as we were leaving after we played two rooms there. So we played that one first, then we played another one, and the guy said to us, oh, just so you're aware, I found out what, what the answers were now, because he didn't actually know at the time. And I said, okay, thanks, and left. So, owners out there, don't make things difficult by making them stupid. Just come up yeah. with a logical puzzle that will challenge people, and if they find all the answers and all the money, so be it. I hardly agree. That is uh, one of the most frustrating things when you come to the end of a, a game which you can't quite finish, or which even if you have finished it, but you've managed to get past a puzzle and you don't quite understand how, if it turns out that it's just a stupid um, pick a random set of numbers from a very large set of numbers that you could have chosen. That is just one of the most frustrating things. Um, you reminded me suddenly of uh, one of the most frustrating experiences I had this uh, this last month or so, um, where there was an escape room we did, which was had some nice ideas in it. They just weren't very well implemented. And, uh, yeah, we got out in just under 13 minutes, which is um, not great value for money. So 13? 1-3? Um, 1-3, one, three. One, three, yep, 1-3, three, 13 wow. minutes. Um, we were waiting longer in the waiting room than we were in the actual game. And, yeah, the, the irony was we got stuck after about three or four minutes. No, yeah, probably three minutes, because we weren't pushing harder enough on a, box, on a, on a door because we were worried we'd break it. And, uh, yeah, I tried to think how fast we'd have been out if, um, if we'd been a bit more robust and willing to push things. But, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a downer. So, as well as not making things hard by, um, by putting in uh, stupid puzzles, also don't make things ridiculously easy by not putting puzzles in. That's my <laughs> suggestion for owners. And I completely agree with that as well. Okay then, uh, moving on. Whilst we've not been away from the podcasting world, uh, changes have happened in the UK escape scene in that, Ken, you are now running Exit Games as well as your own website. And I know you 
been investing a lot of effort in both bringing that up to date and also sharing a lot of news articles to make everyone aware of new rooms that are opening and other things that are going on in the world. Do you want to pick out a couple of highlights from that? first one just because uh, I think it's particularly funny because it clashes the name of your, um, uh, your this podcast and that's uh, Escape Reality uh, which is a new uh, company which seems like it's going to be opening in uh, a variety of places but uh, amongst them Cardiff and Leicester um, and I don't know very much about it but as soon as I saw the name I, I couldn't help but wonder whether they just got jealous of, uh, of the podcast and they thought we've got to use that name somehow uh, but they've gone for Escape Reality not Escape From Reality. We'll have to review the rooms first before we claim any credit for that. But uh... <laughs> and um, well, so what else is there? Oh, one of the ones which um, sadly I've not got a chance to, not had a chance to experience myself, but uh, happened in London last weekend. There was a pop-up escape room in I think it was the Westgate Shopping Centre, um, which was a 15-minute escape room, um, which you could complete with random people. It was put on by Norwegian Airlines. Um, with a chance for um, successful escapers to uh, win a, a trip to San Francisco. Um, so basically it was Norwegian Airlines advertising their new line out, out to, to the San Francisco area. But what was interesting to me was companies are coming online, they're saying we should use escape rooms as a form of advertising, um, which to me means that escape rooms have, have started to gain traction. They've, they've really got into the, not quite the mainstream, but they're that, they're seen as an up and coming trend, a cool thing to to piggyback off when you're trying to um, launch your brand. So that was a really interesting trend for me. Yeah, and I think we've had, or we're about to have, an instance of that up here because Breakout Manchester are involved in an escape game puzzly type thing alongside the launch of the new Harry Potter book working with yep. Waterstones. So it, it does seem that the wider world, if you like, are acknowledging the attraction of this type of attraction <laughs> or, or event um, as a, a promotional tool as well as just for people to do in their recreational time and I think we'll come on with that later on. Yeah and if you look actually over in the other side of the Atlantic um, you've obviously got lots of escaping going on in uh, in the US and Ford have been using escape rooms to advertise their new, I think it's the Ford Escape, I think it's a warehouse space in New York and they're getting people to complete an escape room in a car. Um, so I don't know quite how it works, but I think they've got maybe a few different rooms inside this warehouse, and then you drive between them. Then you just pass the car in order to uh, solve the puzzles in the room. I don't know anything about the puzzles. Like, I'm not spoiling anyway, because I'm just hypothesizing about uh, what you might use. But it occurs to me that things like the rear view camera on the car could be used. Right. So I don't know what it is, but it sounds like that's uh, another huge amount of money going into escape rooms in order to advertise a product so yeah hopefully we'll see more of that in the uk yeah absolutely and the last one i was going to give a shout out to is our friends over at escape quest uh, we talked about them quite extensively in a previous episode and one of their rooms bad clone well they've got a new room opening soon called the 13th element taking a, a science and wonder theme so I, I believe that's opening sometime in July, so uh, that'll be one to look out for as well. Yeah, and we talked about them in that episode, and then I got so jealous of uh, you having played all their games that I decided I had to sort out my life and uh, get up there. So I have now booked in. I will be going to Escape Quest in a couple of weeks' time, so 
uh, yeah, if you're following my blog, then expect reviews of them. And if you're not, then just trust me that I'm very excited. Oh, excellent. We'll be able to compare notes. And it'll yeah. be an awkward conversation if you don't agree. But I'm sure that will be the case. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, moving on, then, to the re-review. When the crowd say ball, selector. Yeah, so talking of comparing notes, this is a re-review of an escape room we've both done, um, which is exciting for me because I like talking to you when you know the same stuff as I do and we're desperately trying not to make any spoilers uh, known to the... Uh, uh, so this one is Leo's Path, which is an escape room by Archimedes Inspiration, a company in uh, South London. This is a story about uh, a brother and sister and the brother is set off uh, to sail the oceans and uh, not returned. And the sister is uh, off in search of her brother to try and uh, find out where he's gone. So, so I think the thing I want to talk about most in this room is emotion. Uh, so I felt joy in a room. I felt excitement in a room. I felt frustration in a room many times. I felt anger in a room. But I've never felt the sort of emotions that I felt when I played this game. I was kind of maybe melancholy, would you say? Sadness? It was a room which just breathed emotion to me. I don't know how you felt about it, Mark. Yeah, I would agree that emotion plays a much stronger part in this and different emotions than it does in normal games. You can get a feel for that with the story briefing that you've just outlined. You're helping a girl go and find her brother. So it's not a hostage situation of smashing a door down and and pulling them out of the building. It's about a feeling of uncertainty. Yeah, and I think also you picked it out well there. It's very calm. This room is incredibly calm. In fact, I think they used the word Zen to describe it a few times. It, it felt like it was very peaceful. You know, there was this this sadness about the, the brother not being there and having to go and search for him, but it was also a kind of peace. And that was um, through the, the layout of the room. So it was it was sparse, but not in a bare way. You know, it, was, it didn't look bare. It just looked like it was very minimalist. And the music was very calming. Um, was used to, to, to inspire that motion at different times. And yeah, it just, I thought it was really well done in that, that side of things. Yeah. So you've got this difference in approach in terms of how the room looks and how the room feels. And then you're given a new challenge of a different approach to how you have to play it as well. Because they tell you in the briefing that there's no searching, scavenging, pulling the place apart required. You just have to go in the and work with what's presented to you. And I found this incredibly challenging because as soon as I didn't know exactly what to do, I just started looking behind things and under things and and obviously finding nothing because they told me there was nothing there, but a constant desire to keep uh, doing what I do normally. Yeah, so that reminds me there's one other thing you've missed out, which is the room was linear. Um, so they tell you before you even enter the room, there's going to be a linear room. And before I played this game, I would have said that linear much made a room not much fun for enthusiasts. But what this room made me realize was that if you design it right, linearity isn't a problem. And if you tell people up front, then it isn't a problem. Because if you all come together and you know that you won't need to search the room, as you've said, if you know that there will only be one puzzle to work on at once. Once you've found out what that puzzle is, then you can concentrate on it, you can discuss it, and actually it brings you together as a team. We spent a lot more time together discussing problems in this game than we did 
in almost any other game I've played. And I actually really enjoyed that aspect of it. You're bouncing ideas back and forth. Or could it be this? Could it be that? What would we do to solve this thing to get past this stage? And the only problem with that is the very first puzzle you find in the room, you won't know whether it's the first puzzle or not. Because if it's linear, then you generally know that whatever new piece of information, whatever new clue you got in the room in, in the last puzzle, that will direct you towards the next puzzle. But the very first puzzle, everything is open in the room. It could be anywhere in the room. Um, and so you end up looking at everything suspiciously. Well, is this where I'm meant to start? Is that where I'm meant to start? And that was a little bit tough. But once we were past that, I found it incredibly liberating. Yeah, I think with linearity, it's not a case of it being good or bad, as you've already picked up on. I think it's a case of it being more difficult to do well. So two of my all-time favourite games have been very linear, but some of my all-time least favourite games have been linear. And it's a case of getting everything else right uh, in terms of theming and story and whatnot, and then getting the difficulty and engagement right as well. Because if you've just got a succession of puzzles and they're all very easy, you don't need a group effort to get around and work your way through them. You'll just blitz through the room really quick. Get the puzzles too hard, though, and it's just such a massive roadblock that you get everyone together, you're all working on it, and you still don't know what to do. There's nowhere else for you to go in the room. You're just being stuck. Yeah, so, I think you, you hit the nail right in the head when you said engagement. It's when people are engaged in the puzzles that, it, that you can get you can make a linear room, room work. And um, so, as you say, if they're too hard or they're too easy, then it gets it breeds frustration. But if you're getting at that right level, that Goldilocks level of puzzles, then you are going to be engaged all the way through. And yeah, it works brilliantly. So back to AI escape. Where do you think that landed on the difficulty scale? Oh uh, well, I think you probably already know the answer to this question. It landed right at the upper end of the difficulty scale. So if I squint, then I would say the puzzles were all solvable. But they were hard, really hard. And to me, they didn't always have a kind of logical solution. I, when I'm looking at puzzles and, and sort of rating them in my head as whether I think they're good or not, then the thing which I look at is when I got the answer, did I go, oh, of course, that is the right answer and feel confident it was right and feel like I could have got it quicker. And I didn't get that sensation in, in AI Escape enough. And there were several puzzles where I got the answer and I, I felt a bit relieved more than anything else. I felt like, okay, I'm past that problem, but I don't really feel confident that was there was a good solution. Maybe I misunderstood how I got it. Maybe there was something I was missing and when they do the walkthrough at the end, I'll realise, ah, oh, that's why I was meant to solve it like that. But I, um, I just didn't feel that throughout several of the puzzles. Um, there's one thing, another thing we've, we've neglected to mention which added to that in that this is a room without padlocks. Yeah, um, it has, I'm trying to think if it's got any locks, traditional locks at all. I don't think it does. No. Um, so, along with the outright difficulty of the puzzles, it's not a case of, oh, I need to come up with this four-digit number now to put in that lock, or a sequence of directions for a directional lock. It's, I have to work it out, and it might involve doing anything in this space that constitutes an answer. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely um, something that was really tough. On the flip side, though, 
those puzzles were just the mechanisms involved, the, the mechanics were amazing. I talk often about how technology in a room is risky, uh, that if it goes wrong, it really um, destroys the experience. And they did two great things here. One is much of the technology was hidden. Often you just didn't really see what was happening. It was just it was just magical. And there was one particular thing, which I'm sure you know uh, what I'm talking about, where when it happened, it was just, wow, that is unbelievable. And But just generally, the, I never got the feeling that the technology was going to break. Often when I'm playing games, uh, and I played a game right next door to that one uh, immediately beforehand where this happened, I feel that the technology is, is a little bit fragile, that it's a bit a bit it's going to be a bit temperamental in some way. So even if it does work, I'm still kind of crossing my fingers. Never even occurred to me that I escaped. Everything just looked perfect. It looked, the room looked solid. And when it was mechanical, it looked like it worked. And when it was technological, it was just hidden away from me and seemed like magic. I would go along with that, absolutely. And what all these things combined gave us was a very unique experience for me. I came out of the room absolutely in love with it because I'd encountered so many different things that I wasn't expecting under the heading of an escape room and now I had and I loved it for challenging those conventions. Giving it more time after and some of the puzzle aspects you've talked about there, were they completely fair or 100% solvable without hints? I'm not entirely sure. And in a different setting, I think that could spoil my experience. But overall, I really enjoyed the room just because of the unique set of challenges it presented. Yeah, so I know exactly what you're saying there. So I came out of the room feeling quite frustrated um, and almost did the, the opposite, where I came out feeling very frustrated with the puzzles. But since then, I've mellowed um, because... As time's gone on, I've, I've really appreciated, as you said, the, the things that this room brought, which other rooms haven't. And I think I described it afterwards as almost like a connoisseur's room. You know, when you've played a lot of escape rooms, this is one which is refreshing. It's different. And in spite of feeling that the game itself didn't do it for me, I'm incredibly excited about their next game. And they're going to be bringing out a new one. I'm not quite sure when, but sometime over the summer or maybe very early autumn. And... I don't care what the theme is. I don't care about any of the details. What they've done with their first room has made me excited about anything else they've produced. So um, it was interesting to, to me because most escape rooms that I play, I feel once I've played one in a venue, others will be similar. Um, they might be an entirely different theme. They might be a, a very different um, format in terms of whether they're using um, technology or, or, or not. But fundamentally, I would expect levels to be about the same. And although this game is a bit frustrating to me, the next one could just blow me away. So... Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see what happens next. So, it's one that I would recommend you experience for yourself, but also one that you need to go in with your eyes open. Yeah, I think so often um, the reason for reviews is to go in with your eyes open. And you go in and you know the weaknesses of the room, so you can kind of mentally adjust for them beforehand. And I'm always, when I'm, I'm pointing people at different escape rooms, I'm always trying to say, look, by the way, you should expect this bit to be weak. I try not to tell them so much about what will be amazing, but the bits that are weak, I really try and point out. To get in there, they, they're expecting it. And I think it can make a big difference. So, yeah. Cool. Well, appropriately enough for a room without padlocks, we'll know, though, 
Beyond the Padlock. Watch closely, because remember, the clues are there as we go. Beyond the Padlock. With AI Escape, though, we've talked about how it approaches the challenge of an escape room almost as an an emotional journey rather than a traditional adventure story. I've got to defuse the bomb, I've got to find the cure, I've got to release the hostage. So it got me thinking about what else escape games could be other than that usual definition. It's interesting you should say that because I'm suddenly thinking of we have genres of films and I'd never really thought of AI Escape as being kind of like fitting into that kind of genre category where escape rooms often have ser- serial killers, sort of horror themes. They'll have um, they'll have themes that are thrillers. They've got themes that are all zombie. And I hadn't really thought that maybe you could take all of the genres that you would classify films in and see which ones of those you can make escape rooms from. And I wonder whether every... Every film genre has an equivalent escape room genre, but just some of them haven't been exploited as much yet. I think that's true. But I think it even goes beyond the traditional film genres. So we were talking earlier about some great examples how escape rooms are used as promotion activity. Now, I know in films you can have a lot of product placement and that can class as a promotion activity, but isn't necessarily the sole purpose of the room. We also touched on in the past about how escape room certainly aspects can be used in an educational setting, whether that be things like breakout edu bringing aspects of escaping into the classroom, or even escape rooms being set up in museums to guide people through stories. Um, we've seen examples of what um, Professor Nicholson has done in that field. Yeah, and in um, in the UK, we've got Pollock House in near Glasgow is opening up an escape room. I think Escape the Past has just opened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then down in uh, Hampshire, uh, down near London, there's an escape room opening up in the Milestone Museum, um, which is another, I think, I think it's Victorian, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's Victorian escape room, because I think it's to do with Queen Victoria. Uh, as we said earlier, with the advertising jumping on the bad wagon, I think that um, museums and yeah, other kind of non-profit, kind of cultural establishments are starting to get in the act too. Yep, and then leaving the actual room behind, we've got the idea of mobile games and pop-up games that you might be able to play at a birthday party, at a festival, uh, anywhere you want, like really. And that, again, is changing what we mean by an escape room or by a, a live-action adventure into something you can enjoy in, in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, we're getting a whole load of different axes. So you've got, as you said, the, the pop-ups. But, but there are pop-ups which are kind of these very short-lived two-day ones. There are the, the ones like uh, Clockwork Dog, which are three weeks or so. And you get some which are kind of for a few months, like the... Um, uh, horror ones that were up in, uh, in there was one in Birmingham, one in um, Manchester, trapped up north and panic, I think. Um, so you get you get kind of that that axis of of how long they last, but you get um, the educational aspects uh, and the different themes. 
and there's all these different ways in which we're kind of expanding in different directions. It's interesting to see, see how they pan out. And all this thinking and discussing took me back to one of the conversations I was having at the unconference back in April. So one of the questions that got posed quite frequently that day in various guises was, how do you make a good escape room? Or how do you make a profitable escape room? Or what's the best, where's the best place to locate it? And my response to that now is that it really depends on what it is you want to create. Because an escape room has such a broad definition now, you've got a lot of factors to consider rather than um, what theme you're going to put in there and which puzzles you're going to select. So maybe for some owners, it's all about maximising profits, getting as many people through the doors as often as they can and being sold out every day and tapping into corporate markets and bringing in the additional funds that way. But I also know that some people own escape rooms so that they can have a living that they enjoy. And it's not purely amounts of profit driven. They just want the facility to wash its own hands and keep its head above water and other cliches. So they can say their job is running an escape room and as long as they can afford to live, then they're happy with that. So on top of both of those things, when you're thinking about where to locate it, well, maybe you want to put it in a city centre because you want to have as high footfall as possible. You want people walking past and asking what that is and you want to tap into potentially a tourist trade. Or you might want to stick it in the middle of nowhere. You might want to have a great deal more flexibility in terms of what you can do with the space. But you're actually asking people then to come just to play your game or possibly to participate in a number of games because we've seen escape games based alongside laser quest and paintballing and that type of stuff too. Yeah, I think um, Milton Keynes is a good example of that. So there are two escape rooms in Milton Keynes and they have been put in very different places. So one of them's right in the centre, looking for the uh, local trade, easy access, the kind of thing you do after work or the weekend. And the other one's out at Bletchley Park. Uh, so that's, I don't know, three miles out from the centre. Certainly not something you'd be going to uh, just in passing. It's not an area you'd be around. It's a pain to get to. But they're obviously wanting to have something which is taking advantage of the history of that area. They've got an escape room that's based around code breakers and they want it in a uh, very thematic location. So they're in, I think, Block E of the Coding Cryptography Center. And yeah, I think that's a very different uh, kind of way of approaching the running an escape room. If you're going for an area where it really has its history, then um, you can kind of do things a little bit differently. You've published some data this week about how the number of escape rooms in the UK is constantly rising and looks set to continue in the future and obviously I'm fully encouraged and uh, happy about that. My question for people entering the market at this stage is not how do you think you're going to crack it and how is your room themed, it's what type of room or facility or experience do you want to offer your players and customers and once you've thought about that and come up with an answer that makes you happy then we can start thinking about well what is the right type of information that you'll need to maximize that experience yeah i think you're right so it used to be you could be the first escape room in your city the first one in your town 
And if you're the first one, then that's obviously a massive advantage. And you get the higher ranking from search engines because you've been there longer. And word of mouth, people are more likely to feed into you. It generally just keeps on playing back. The first person in the city does best. But now that we're starting to run out of those um, 100,000 population towns and cities, I think you're going to have to develop your own niche in another way. You've got to look at the market and say, well, this is this is where I think I can play. Um, whether that's because you think you can make a room that is really embedded in the history of the local area or um, one that is a super high-tech room or one with amazing corporate uh, customer service focused very much on team building. I think you do have to come up with that. This is where I think I sit in the market and that's my special source that's going to make me better than the, the competitors in my area. Are you aware of any operators at the moment that dip into multiple pots of this? So that they, they play in sort of two different markets? Yeah, that they have maybe some traditional rooms, but also maybe a pop-up game or an educational game? or Not really. I've, I've heard a few people talking about how they were thinking of doing it. 8th November is probably the closest in that it does run very quite varied rooms. And so it's not, it's not really a proper escape room in the normal sense. It runs outdoor escape rooms mainly, but it does target the corporate market as well. Oh, and it will um, run games within uh, your company's premises. And it also has a murder mystery game, which is much more like a traditional escape room, but in a, a pub location. Um, so they're probably the ones that are closest to targeting different areas. But I can't think of anyone that's really done traditional escape room with its own venue and also does an entirely pop-up. Uh, no, I do. I can think of one. Um, so uh, can you escape in Edinburgh? They have a traditional escape room, which has got I think, a couple of rooms, and it's just opened a franchise down in York. Um, but they've also just released this new uh, mobile game, which they've been taking to conference premises. Um, so, best example, uh, can you escape in Edinburgh? Oh, and that's interesting. And I wonder if they, or even us, can inspire owners to think about how they can take the skills and experience that they've developed in whatever the first love was and then tap into some of these other areas uh, whether to just to diversify their offering or to get into areas like promotional and educational where they may be able to help a whole different market of people that aren't necessarily interested in escape games under the traditional definition yes i think there's also an angle here where you fall into accident so I don't know if you remember, but there was a, an escape room event held in London last year, I think it was, by Thinking Bob, which was six mini escape rooms, five minutes each, run by various companies around London. And as part of that, ClueQuest came along with their mini game, five-minute game, really fun. And they have since developed that game to take to conferences, and they also used it, or at least a, a variant of it, at the House of Time and Wonder, which was a promotional experience for Alice through the looking glass. So they've sort of, I don't know if they've deliberately targeted that or they've slowly fallen into it, but certainly they seem to be getting more and more involved with taking that mini game out. And I get the feeling it's mainly as advertising, so trying to get people into ClueQuest in in their their headquarters. Um, I'm not of the opinion that it's trying to generate money itself, uh, either through the promotional material or or through eventually charging people for the mini game. But I do wonder whether, as they sort of grow that market and grow that opportunity, whether they'll start to see, actually, we can charge people for this experience. Certainly, I could imagine them taking it to a corporate customer. We can give you these three mini escape rooms, take 10 minutes each, 
Um, we can play them solidly all day and you can have half an hour out or an hour or whatever for your clients or your employees to try out these escape games and have some fun, a bit of team building, a bit of fun. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely scope for that. Right? And if Clue Quest are involved, it's certainly of interest. We can probably talk about them in more detail in a future episode and some of the uh, rooms and experiences that they offer already. But yep. certainly one to keep an eye on. So I'll wait to see what happens there. We'll move on to lock in or keep out. Three, two, one. Come on, come on. Oh, Everyone's favourite section of the show, where we talk about whether we like or don't like a escape game trope, and today we'll talk about one very close to heart, and that is directional padlocks. Do you want to kick us off, Ken? Oh yeah, directional padlocks. Uh, they're one of my favourite subjects in escape rooms, so I don't like them, and I have two reasons not liking them, uh, one of which is uh, good and one of which is bad. Um, so let's just get the bad one out of the way. The first reason I don't like these is because I'm rubbish at them. Um, I'm rubbish at anything directional. As you experienced once when we were in a room together, <laughs> I don't remember this. Uh, and I was truly atrocious. And I would like to pretend that that was the only time I've been atrocious with them. But I have made the same mistakes in other rooms on several occasions to the point now where when I get an escape room with a directional lock, I just hand it over to someone else and get them to do it because I will just fail miserably and they will laugh at me. It's worth pointing out that in the in the game you mentioned, that wasn't that wasn't the padlock's fault. That is just your concept of direction, yeah. which isn't on trial here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I just uh, just struggle with directions. It's, uh, yeah, it's just a problem I've got. Everyone has a weak spot. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Actually, if any of my uh, friends who played escape rooms with me are listening, yeah, I know I have a few other weak spots when it comes to escape rooms. Let's not mention them. Moving swiftly on. Yeah, so um, the good reason for disliking them. I just don't trust them because they break a lot. Um, so you mentioned Breakout Edu earlier, and I was on the Facebook group for Breakout Edu for several months and eventually came off because I was fed up with people saying, I've broken my uh, directional padlock. Um, how do I fix it? And other people saying, you can't because they just break all the time because people accidentally reset them to the wrong codes and then they can't unlock them. Even when you do get the right code in them, if you start to um, put the code in and you forget to double tap the hasp uh, before you start, then obviously the, the code won't work. And if you do get the code right and you forget to pull the hasp strongly enough, then it won't be obvious you've unlocked it. So on so many levels, I find them frustrating. And it's just a shame because they're a really fun type of lock to have. And I can see why they were popular. But I just think the risks within them are just too high to make them worth putting into a escape room. Yeah. What about you? I got off to a bad start with directional locks for a reason that you mentioned in your description there. We all know now that in between each attempted combination, you have to double press the top to reset it. But the first time I ever came across one, I wasn't told this. <laughs> so I spent who knows how long attempting the right combination and several other incorrect ones without resetting it in between each time and just sliding it up, down, left, right until the cows come home. So yeah. right from the get-go, it's something that isn't immediately obvious to people. And I know that a proper host will negate that by explaining it to people in advance. But you're putting something artificial in a room. So when you're trying to come up with a feeling of immersion, what would this scenario look like in real life? 
in 99.9% of cases, there wouldn't be a directional padlock there, usually. Yeah, it's also, we are talking about confidence earlier in confidence in your answer. I think inherently when you're using a, a, a directional padlock, you just aren't very confident in it. There's something about how when you slide to the side, you're thinking, well, have I slid that enough? Did I slide that a bit up as well as to the side? I, and you just you, you just have so many of these doubts. I've never opened one and felt confident that I've got the code right. You know, When they have opened, it's been sheer relief. It's not been a, yeah, I've definitely input that code just right. Whereas when you've got the majority of uh, combination locks, you can have a look at it and it's like, yep, I can see that. I've definitely input it right. You can show it to the, your, your teammate and say, look, I put this in. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So I think that makes a big difference as well. I can see the interest in them because there was a post on the Escape Enthusiast Facebook group recently, I believe it was from Professor Nicholson again, which was talking about something that you, I know you don't like, which is when you get a four-digit answer to something and turn around and there's 30 different four-digit padlocks behind you, and which one of these do we put in? And one of the ways of avoiding that is using different styles of locks. So maybe you'll have a three-digit, a four-digit, a directional one, a magnetic one, and it becomes more obvious on which answer you need to put were rather than just trial and error. And yes, there is merit to that, but at the same time, if you approach it from purely that perspective, you are then artificially forcing in a puzzle that's going to give you a directional answer just so you can use that lock, rather than a puzzle that fits in the room, fits in with the theme, and either produces a number or produces a key, or even better, causes something to happen without having to manually open a lock. So I'm not 100% against them, in that if it does keep in with theme and the puzzle produces a, a logical answer, yes, it can give you a bit of variety, it can be a novel thing to play with. But I wouldn't have one just for the sake of having them. Yeah, I can just about tolerate them if, uh, if there's a good reason to have them in the room, if there's some puzzle where that's a natural solution. But that's the only circumstance. And generally, um, I just say absolutely uh, keep out. One more thing to add is that I played a room recently that had what must be the next generation of directional locks. So rather than just a disc that you push up and left and right, it was more like a joypad where you just pressed it to the up and the down and the left and the right. And I think you could also use it to enter letters that way as well because it had letters around the circle of the dial and also a light in the middle which flashed when you entered an incorrect code or ultimately the correct code so you could open it, which was better than a normal one but still has the problems that we've described. So again, uh, using moderation. Yeah, that would probably solve a few of the, the, the issues I had, but yeah, not quite all of them. Okay, so we've set the world to right again there, Ken. Uh, thanks yep. very much for your input. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just uh, thanks to those people who are still listening. We've talked about that acid test of our listeners before. We've done quite well with people coming back through the first three episodes, but will they have drifted off into something else in the four weeks we've been away? Yeah, maybe they've escaped. <laughs> Only time will tell. Well, uh, thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye now.